0: First Thessalonians chapter 1, that's in your New Testament. You'll find it in the epistle section, the letters to various churches. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I am deeply indebted, as I always am. I never, I never claim any originality for anything. But as usual, I am deeply indebted to those wiser than me smarter than I am to various scholars and pastors who've written and talked about these things. Today we want to look at seven ingredients the Lord wants in our church. If you will, you think of the book of 1 Thessalonians as a recipe. As if you will, you're making a cake. Of course, this is far greater than any cake you will ever eat. And Far tastier than any cake, and it lasts longer than any cake you'll eat as well. Yesterday we celebrated Heidi's, my daughter's birthday, and we had a wonderful cake made up of various ingredients. On their own, those ingredients aren't necessarily very tasty. I mean, if you eat, for example, flour all by itself, that's not very good, or salt, you know, or You know, take a whole handful of sugar and put that in your mouth or whatever else was in that cake. It's made up of various ingredients, and when you put those ingredients together, they make something that's very nice to eat. And the Holy Spirit has put together here seven ingredients that we see in this church here, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that are pleasing to the Lord. He is, as we've sung about, the head of the church. He is the foundation. He loves his church. He died for his church, and he's living and in and in, and in, in interceding for his church today. And we see all of the basic ingredients here that the Lord wants in a church, and we see them here in this church. Now, this isn't a perfect church, okay? Please don't think that uh, they they're they're sinners just like you and like me. But the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians here lays out for us the pattern of the Christ-centered church. The epistle, interestingly enough, doesn't contain any reference to the number of church members. It doesn't tell us about their goals or their objectives. It doesn't tell us about the church programs that they may have had. It doesn't tell us the kind of sermons that were preached in that church or uh, the, the type of music that they sang. It doesn't tell us about their Sunday school, if they even had one. Uh, it doesn't tell us about their worship service. It doesn't talk about maybe the, the, the church camps that they may have had with other churches. It doesn't tell us any about that, that stuff that you might be interested in knowing about. Obviously, those aren't the most important things, are they? However, the epistle does tell us about several spiritual elements. And when they're combined together, they make for a very powerful combination. These are seven ingredients the Lord wants in our church. Now, if you were to visit the city of Thessalonica today, uh, the, it's interesting, interestingly enough, the, if you had a travel guide, he wouldn't actually call it Thessalonica. So if, if you do a search for that, uh, you're, you're not going to find it spelled the way it is in our Bible. In fact, it's, it's as, I'm not sure how you pronounce it in, in Greek, but Thessaloniki. Okay, is that how you say it? All right. But uh, it, needless to say, it's, it, it's a city that's still around today. It's an important industrial and commercial city in modern Greece. Uh, it is second, apparently, only in uh, population to the city of Athens. Now, World War II time, it was interesting that uh, it was captured by the Germans. There was, a, at the time, a large Jewish population there, as there was in, in Paul's day, Uh, approximately 60,000 people were deported and exterminated by the Nazis. But as we know, it's an ancient city. Obviously, it's mentioned here in the Bible, and it was even around before Paul's time. Uh, Originally, it was named Therma from the the many hot springs that were in that area there. In uh, 315 B.C., before Christ, it was actually renamed to Thessalonica after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Remember around that time period, Alexander the Great and the, and, and the Greeks were, were, were conquering the known world at that time, so uh, he, he named a lot of places. But anyway, when Rome uh, eventually conquered uh, Macedonia, up in the northern part of Greece there in, in uh, 168 BC, the city was made the, the capital of that, that province there. So in Paul's day, there were about uh, approximately 200,000 people who were living there, most of them. Were Greeks, but there was also some Romans, and uh, there was a very strong Jewish group, but they were they were in the minority. So the Apostle Paul, he comes on his missionary journey. Apparently, it was his, his second missionary journey that I'm aware of. Anyway, he preached the gospel to the Thessalonians during this uh, jur- missionary journey, and after he left them, he he sent Timothy back because he was concerned about them. He had to leave quite quickly. He didn't get to stay as long as he probably wished he could have as a result of the persecution. But anyway, he sent Timothy uh, to find out how they were doing. And when Timothy returned, he came back with a fantastic report that we actually see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, Before we get to chapter 1, I want you to see what Timothy says here. Uh, Well, this, this is apparently what he reported anyway. 1 Thessalonians 3, we see this fantastic report In verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, it says this But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. So apparently, Paul received a pretty good message from Timothy, as you can see there in those verses. The good news that was reported to the Apostle Paul actually prompted him to, to write this letter. This apparently is, is what it, the, what is stirring him to write. And so I trust that as we look at this letter to this specific local church, as we look at some of these basic principles in this epistle, that the Holy Spirit's going to help you and help me, help us to see what He desires from us and from our church. So let's look at these individual ingredients that we see here. First of all, we see that the first ingredient, which, of course, this is what makes a church, is that they were a saved church. Notice how Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he's writing, Inspired by the Spirit. Notice the very first verse of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the words there. It is to the church of the Thessalonians in... Notice the word "in." That's an important word there. In God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, this base that you can based on those words there, uh, they were obviously an assembly that was made of born again Christians. They had been converted. They had been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and by the way, therein lies the beginning of of any effective, healthy church. Because what makes a church is Christians, those who are in. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you in Jesus Christ? Read Romans. You're in Him through faith in Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. Now this is significant. That they were born... This this group of people were, were born-again believers. That's significant because there are many churches today, frankly, that, that don't know the meaning of salvation. You ask uh, people in churches... Uh, give me in, in 2 minutes tell me what is the gospel that's quite revealing <laughs> you ask people what is the gospel what is the good news uh, <clears throat> i asked a lady one time she wanted to become a member i asked her that one time and and uh, she, she had no clue absolutely no clue she and, and frankly as a result of asking her that question what is the gospel she came to realize that she wasn't even christian and She became a Christian eventually became a church member. But that was a very helpful question for her. I remember asking one guy about five years ago, right over there in that corner, uh, can you tell me the gospel? He says, I don't know the gospel. He didn't know the gospel. Many people are like that. And so many churches, as a result, are ineffective because there's this mixture within the church of, well, Jesus described it, a mixture of wheat and the tares, the tares being the weeds amongst the wheat. Jesus said, by the way, he told the angels, just leave them. You know, the end times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with them, and I'm going to reveal who is really a part of the church and who is not. But their redemption here is, is verified by the very words we see in this passage. I want us to read on, and you can see, looking at, look for words as we read these next couple verses that show us that that these people were truly Christians. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Let's stop there, because... Paul could thank God here for various things. He, he could thank God for the Thessalonians, number, as we see in verse 1, because they were in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christians are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They gave evidence, by the way, of personally knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior. You can see several things there. And Paul thanked them for that. Notice the end of verse 4, your election by God, God chose these people, as Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world, that they would be holy and blameless before him. Now Let's take a look at, at Acts chapter 17. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read you one verse. Because in Acts chapter 17, we see how the church at Thessalonica actually began. And, and Acts one, uh, 17 verse 1 says this, They came to, that's Paul and his companions, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you know anything about Paul, that was his normal way of doing things. He, being a Jew himself, he would come to a a different city, in this case Thessalonica, and the first thing he did, so that he didn't turn the Jews off, he would come to their synagogue, where the Jews would be, and he would preach and teach to the Jews. And that's exactly what he did in Thessalonica. And so when Paul entered this, this city to spread the gospel, he would, he would generally go and he preached the gospel in the synagogue because he himself was a Jew and he wanted to reach the Jews. Yes, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he knew if he went to the Gentiles first, the Jews weren't going to listen to him. So he went to the Jews first. And then in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, we, we have a report of the content of Paul's preaching. Here's what it says. Listen closely. And Paul went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Notice he uses the scriptures. And what did he do? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's very enlightening, isn't it? That was his message to the Jews. Now, most Jews didn't understand the concept of Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or other places in Scripture of a suffering Messiah. They didn't get it. They wanted a conquering Messiah, one that would come and, and defeat the Romans and, and help bring their nation to victory. They just didn't get a suffering Messiah. That didn't make any sense to them. But what is Paul doing here? He, he's spending time showing them that Christ must suffer, and that the one who died on the cross was your Messiah. <laughs> well, what was the result of Paul's preaching? Well, in the very next verse, we see the results. Verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So there was a result of the preaching. So very as you see in Acts 17, from the very beginning of this church, There is a tremendous response to the gospel, even though Paul spent, as it said there, only three Sabbath days in the city, apparently. Uh, Didn't spend a long time there, but there there was a handful of people, a core part of the church to get them going, get them off the ground, so to speak. So the key to the success of the church is its purity. Purity of the church is vitally important, which is one of the reasons why every church should have church membership. Now, that doesn't ensure that uh, the members are going to be saved. Nobody can see our hearts except God. But God calls us to be fruit inspectors, to look for evidences of grace, to guard the purity of the church. Because even Paul himself said, in Acts even from within the church can arise wolves, who are actually in sheep's clothing, who will devour the flock of God. So he calls us to beware. This is an important matter. Thankfully, Paul was looking for evidences of grace. He was bringing a fruit inspector, and he, he saw that God was at work because, first of all, they were a saved church. And so this is important because the reality is, when someone is totally regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to make a difference in the community. You, you will see fruit. You will see evidences of grace in someone who is truly a believer. I mean, how can the Holy Spirit come and fill and, in, and indwell and illuminate someone and there have no effect upon that individual? I mean, that's that's like the illustration I heard one time, some guy walking into the office and you know and telling everybody in the office hey you know sorry everybody i was late to work today uh, i got hit i got hit by an 18-wheel truck while walking to work today and everybody looks at him and you know they're looking at the guy and feeling him, make sure he's okay you got hit by an 18-wheel truck and and you it's had an absolutely no effect on you how could you have been hit by something that big and powerful and you would question whether that guy was actually telling the truth right well, you have to question people who say, hey, I've been filled with the Spirit. I have evidences of grace in my life. And, and they, you just don't see it. Have they been so-called hit by the Holy Spirit or not? This church, because they were true believers, they were a saved church. You could see the evidences of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit working in their midst and in their lives. In fact, look at uh, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, look what what Paul says here. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The word of God, the good news of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit had an effect upon them. It changed their lives. By the way, speaking of that, has your life been changed through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit? That is a great evidence of grace. That is, that is evidence of a transformed life. That is evidence that your eternal home is heaven, that you, are, that you are on your way to heaven, and that you are a true believer. If you've never had that conversion, if you feel like your life is just the same as it's always been, well, you, you have to question whether or not you're really a believer. They were a saved church, and it, it, it drastically changed their lives. Well, the second ingredient of a church that's pleasing to the Lord is a surrendered church. They were a surrendered church. Look at verse 6. And you, that's this church, became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. There's a very interesting word in verse 6. It's the word followers, fourth word there in in my translation. The word followers is the Greek word mimetes, or however you say it. Anyway, from that word, we get the the English word mimic or or mime. You think of someone who mimics or mimes, uh, someone who's mimicking you. I mean, my, my baby does this to me all the time, right? Babies are good at this. Kind of like parents, right? You 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 often say something, you, you drop something, and you say "uh-oh," and my little baby, my little baby says "uh-oh," or you say "bath," and she's she tries to say the word, usually it comes out as "ba," you know, it's, or something like that. Babies are often good at uh, being mimes or, or mimics, and that's that's the word for follower. There, they, these people weren't just professing christians like some people you know they they go around they profess christ but they they don't live like they are followers of christ but in this case these people were imitators of christ they were passionate followers of christ they tried to mimic him they tried to live and talk like him isn't that the pursuit of the christian life isn't that what it's all about being a follower of christ it's Pursuit of the Christian is to be like Christ, right? Hopefully that's your view of things. That is, by the way, the key to unity in the church. The problem why, one reason why there's not always unity in churches is because we tend to follow something other than Christ. I heard an illustration uh, might be helpful one time. Uh, we, we have a, Some of you who come on Thursday nights know we have a piano at our house. And that piano gets tuned twice a year. We have a man. He comes in. He tunes that piano uh, twice a year. And and he. It used to be, <laughs> not so much nowadays, but it used to be that that guys who would come and tune pianos would have tuning forks. Often it was it was it'd be according to the middle C. And they they would you know hit that little tuning fork and they would start in the middle of the piano and. And, and usually they would work their way this way, and then once he got that side of the piano done, he would you know, hit that tuning fork again. He'd keep hitting the tuning fork as he was tuning, tuning according to that tune, the tuning fork. And then he'd work his way this way. And so by the time he was done, you know, if he's tuning to that one tuning fork, that piano would be exactly in tune. And he could tune every, t- every piano in the whole city according to that tuning fork, and every piano in the city would be in key with one another. Nowadays, my, the guy who comes and tunes our piano, he, just, he has an electronic device that's measuring the frequencies of every single key on the piano. A lot of people don't even bother using tuning forks nowadays, because some people are tuning deaf. If you don't have the ear for that sort of thing, you can't do it. But that's the way it ought to be in the church. If if our lives, if every one of us is tuned to Jesus Christ, we're in tune with Him. We're following Jesus Christ. Then every one of us will be united together. The problem is we're not always tuned to Christ. We're not always following Him. We're we're following some guru on the internet, or some guru in on the magazine, or the book, or you know the televangelist, or something else. We're not in tune with Christ, so therefore we're divided sometimes. That's important. This, this church was, was tuned to Christ. They were surrendered church because they were followers of Christ. That's the key to unity. The third ingredient is that they were a suffering church. As we saw at the end of verse 6, it said, having received the word in what? What was it say? In much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word with, as it says, much affliction. They were a suffering church. This church, by the way, uh, apparently didn't have it easy. In fact, uh, any church in the first and second century wouldn't have had it easy. And that's reality, my friends. That is the reality, that any church who is saved, any church that is striving to be followers of Jesus Christ, is going to suffer persecution. Paul said that. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the church that's doing that is going to have a difficult time. And the reality is, as as we see in Acts, as soon as the Thessalonian church began, it started to experience opposition and persecution. We can see that in Acts 17. You can read it for yourself. Uh, Let me just quote it. Verse 5 says, The Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. (laughs) That was the beginning of the Thessalonian church. They experienced persecution. And then here in chapter two, First Thessalonians chapter two, we have a review of that persecution that the church had experienced. So let's read uh, here in First Thessalonians two, verse fourteen. Verse fourteen: For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Let's stop there. So we see that the church that is made of Christians, saved, surrendered to Christ what is that effect going to have on the world around them? If we are saved and we are sold out for God, following Jesus Christ, what effect will we have on the world around us? We will antagonize the world around us. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself said so in John 15. In John 15, Jesus said this. Listen listen closely. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I'll give you an illustration of this, a modern-day illustration. When I was in university, uh, a, a fellow church, uh, a sister church, if you will, in the States, in fact, in, in the city of San Francisco, San Francisco, California, if you're familiar, is uh, like one of the capitals of the world for the homosexuals. And there is a, a, uh, a Baptist church there that I'm aware of that does preach the gospel, who loves homosexuals, but yet nevertheless does not overlook their sin of homosexuality. And they preach against the sin of homosexuality, and they witness to the homosexuals and tell them that Christ died for their sin of homosexuality. You know What? That doesn't win them very many friends. And in fact, when I was in university, we, uh, the president of our university played on the loudspeakers for all of us to hear what, what went on during one of their services. During one of their services, the homosexuals surrounded their church building and could have burned the church building down with them inside it. They started throwing things at, at the building, including things that were on fire. They started breaking the windows and shouting and disturbing the service. You could hear, as the pastor was, was speaking, you, you could hear all the noise as all these homosexuals had surrounded the church building. That is what the truth does to those who live in darkness. Those who live in darkness, Jesus said, don't like the light. Why, Jesus said? Because their deeds are evil. And so the church that confronts the world is going to suffer. That's the reality. We need to be ready for that. Number four, the fourth ingredient of a church that's pleasing to the Lord is that we need to be a soul-winning church. A soul-winning church. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's two things I want to point out here in this this church obviously had a wonderful testimony for Christ. But this testimony comes in two, two ways that we can see here. How did they witness for Christ? Well, the first way that they spread the gospel was through their just living an exemplary life. Living a life that is Christ-like, that is godly. Verse 7 talks about their example. They became You became examples to all in that region. What is an example? It's just, it's your life, isn't it? It's, in this case, it was an exemplary, faithful, Christ-honoring, godly life. They set a pattern for everyone else. Now, this is interesting because, remember, they're, they're living very close to Greece here. This is part of modern-day Greece. Uh, what, did the, what did the Grecians believe in? They believed in multiple gods, didn't they? In fact, you, you, know, you know the Greek gods? Uh, in fact, uh, Thessalonica, by the way, was only 50 miles from Mount Olympus. Do you know the significance of Mount Olympus? It was the, the supposed residence of at least some of the Greek gods, if not all of them. So here they are. They're, 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 they're close to their the, the mecca, if you will, of, of the Greek gods. They're in the cesspool. They're in a hot pit here, so to speak. But nevertheless, they spread the gospel by living exemplary lives. The second way of spreading the gospel is through a verbal witness. That's what they did in verse 8. It wasn't enough for them to just live the godly life. They also believed in speaking about Christ. It says, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. God calls us to be witnesses for Christ. We can't save anybody. We're just witnesses of Christ. We just are to be talking about who we know. Hopefully you know him, so you can talk about him. It's interesting the Greek word there sounded out. We get the English word echo from that. We get the English word echo. In other words, the idea is we're to be echoes. What does an echo do? All right, you find yourself standing in some empty room or some canyon and you yell out, what's going to happen? You, whatever you say is going to reverberate and continue to, to make that what you just said and go on and on and on, and eventually you don't hear it anymore. That's what an echo is. We are to be an echo. Christian's testimony is to be an echo of what, though? What are we to echo? What are we to talk about? Christ. What he did, his person and his work that he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died, and he rose again, conquered sin and death and Satan, and now lives in heaven. One day he's coming, and we need to be ready for him. Well, what was the result of their testimony? We see that in verse 9. The result is that they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did their testimony and their word have an effect? Absolutely. They turned from the false gods of Greece to the living, the only God that exists. The next ingredient, the fifth ingredient of a church that's pleasing to the Lord is we need to be a second coming church. A second coming church. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It starts with the word and. And to wait... For his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. My friend, are you waiting for God's Son, Jesus Christ? Are you waiting? Are you ready for him to return? He could come back at any moment. Notice that it is, this is the same Jesus, by the way, in verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. and The one who delivered us from the wrath to come. God promised that Jesus would come back and he would gather believers to himself. We see that in John 14. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house there are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Therefore, the ideal church is doing what? The ideal church is awaiting Christ's return. So even in churches, by the way, there's there are people who aren't awaiting Christ's return. They're, they're living this life as if this is all there is, or if there isn't something to look forward to, my friend. Oh. <laughs> Oh, please don't live that way. Do as Colossians 3, 2 says, Have your affection set on things above and not on this earth. Have your treasure in heaven where nobody can break in and steal it and nothing can, can decay it and nothing can eat it and destroy it. We should be anxiously awaiting Christ's return. The reality is anticipation of the future. The, uh, that is what should motivate us to live godly lives. Number six, the sixth ingredient of a church that's pleasing to the Lord is that they were a steadfast church. They were a steadfast church. Look at chapter 3. Oh, there's many things we could could gather from this entire book. We're just hitting a few highlights today. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, it says, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress... We were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. They were a steadfast church. They did stand fast in the Lord. By the way, standing fast in the Lord means two things. Number one, here's where it starts, okay? It, it, it's the idea of standing fast. The idea of not wavering doctrinally. It's it's like Ephesians talks about. I think it's a, what three or chapter three or four. I can't remember. It talks about those who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine. That is not someone who is standing fast. If you're just tossed about, you know, any any idea that hits you from the internet or a magazine or a book or a person, you know, you're just you're all over the place. That that is not being steadfast. Wavering doctrinally is not being steadfast. But it's also the idea of maintaining a steadfast love. A person, that, now please understand this, a person can stand fast doctrinally, but at the same time you could become the, uh, I like to call them the frozen chosen. You know what I'm saying? The frozen chosen. They're just dead spiritually. There's just appears to be no life at all. James James says that, that, that the true Christian, the one who is on fire for Jesus Christ, is the one who is yielding fruits, good works in their life. A faith without works, James said, is dead. So a person, yes, you can know all the right doctrine, you could, you could have the entire 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith memorized, and there's people who do, who've done those sort of things, and still be lost as the chicken in the chicken coop. You understand? It's not enough to just know the right things. Jude says that even the demons and, uh, and and Satan know the right answers. They know the catechism far better than we do. They know the answers. <laughs> but they're not saved. That doesn't make you saved. By the way, it doesn't make you saved to just just uh, do the right things either. Okay, please understand. But those who are truly saved ought to live like like they're actually saved. And that's why a Christian needs to stand firm in love. Unfortunately, uh, that's not what happened with Ephesus. Uh, if you read on to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, we see Christ actually reproved the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus, Jesus commended them for a lot of things, including what they actually knew about Jesus, what they did for Jesus. But Jesus reproved them in Revelation 2 4, he said, I have this against you that you have left your first love. This church, Church of Thessalonica, stood firmly on the word of God. That's clear. And it's exciting for any pastor or missionary to see a church that that doesn't waver from its doctrine. They stay committed to their doctrinal statement. But it's also important that we stay committed to loving God with all. Let's not be like the church of Ephesus. All right? Yes, let's know the doctrinal statement. Let's believe the doctrinal statement, but let's let's not be the frozen chosen either, please. (laughs) Neither one are pleasing to God. We need both to be pleasing to Him. And the last one, last ingredient, number seven, is that they were a submissive church. They were a submissive church. Now, this one's not as obvious. If you read, though, The whole last chapter, which uh, I'll show you here in just a moment, my point. But the the, the last principle we see here is that they were a submissive church, and it's based really on on the whole last part of chapter 5. If you read Paul's epistles, I love Paul's epistles, these letters to various churches and church leaders. There is no other letter or epistle that, that Paul makes this many unqualified and undefended commands all in one go. The church of Corinth was, was nothing like this church. In fact, you read uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, basically every single chapter, almost every single chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing some various different issue and matter, that, or, or sin in many cases, that that church had. And he has to take at least a whole chapter, and sometimes multiple chapters, to defend himself, defend the error that they have, and show them where they're wrong and what they need to do to repent of their sin. Paul doesn't do that with Thessalonica. Paul didn't have to reprimand them. He didn't have to convince them of anything. He just simply commands them from the Holy Spirit to do these things. You're saying, okay, I still don't get it. What are you talking about? Okay, well, let's look at the verses. You can see for yourself there's 17 commands here. 17 commands, starting in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, that's a strong statement. In fact, here's the commands. To recognize who, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, "...comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things." Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's stop there because thus ends the commands. Do you get the point? <laughs> After seventeen short commands, Paul doesn't bother to defend them. He just declares them. He doesn't have to reprimand them. He doesn't have to convince them of anything like he did to the church of Corinth. He just simply states it. Why? Apparently, they were a submissive church. Paul didn't need to give any detailed explanations of his instructions here. They were apparently a submissive church. Now, can you imagine me or any preacher for that fact getting up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning and quoting verse 22? Abstain from every form of evil. All right, let's pray. And then the pastor prays and sits down and everybody goes home. Can you imagine a sermon that short? I don't think that's ever happened that I'm aware of. This was an amazing church. A church that is submissive, hears the Word of God, hears these commands coming from Scripture, and knows that these are coming from God Himself, submits Him or herself to God's Word, and obeys, believes exactly what it says. What did they do? They readily opened their hearts. They accepted the instruction that was given to them. That's a submissive church. May I remind you, by the way, submissive churches are made of submissive individuals. Are you submissive? Every time you read the Bible, every time you hear the word preached, or you listen to it on your MP3 player or on your computer, Every time you hear that, do you, are you thinking in your heart, in your mind, this is God's word, these are the inspired words from God himself to me, these, this comes with great authority from the creator of the universe, I believe, I accept, and I will obey whatever God tells me to do or not do. Is that your attitude? Every time you read God's word and hear it preached? It should be. If not, then you're not submissive. God wants us to submit to His word and to Him. I want us to see see how this, uh, how this. I want I'll just get a little overview of this church. Just look at a, just. I'm going to look at three verses. Okay, go back to chapter one, and we'll end with these verses. Okay. Chapter one. I want you to see how this church was submissive. How did they respond to God's word? Look at chapter one, verse six. Chapter 1, verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. All right, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Notice verse 2. Now, this is interesting in the light of being a submissive church. Look at verse 2 because it says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. (laughs) They knew what they were, and they obeyed. They were submissive. Submissive churches are made of submissive individuals, and when these submissive individuals and Christians make up a submissive church, it is pleasing to God, and when you combine all of these seven ingredients makes for a powerful church, doesn't it? This is a great church. Is it perfect? No, of course not. But these are some ingredients that the Lord wants in our church. Okay, Please don't sit here and say, you know, that's great. You know, know, that church a long time ago in the first century had all these ingredients. um, But, you know, that's impossible. We can't be that way. And there's no point in us even trying. No, please don't think that way. We can. We ought to try. We ought to pray. Are you praying that God would make you this kind of a Christian? Are you praying that God would make our church this way? That we would be united uh, around the truth of Scripture and that we would be uh, lovers of the truth, that we would be these kind of Christians? (laughs) I hope so. Would you pray with me? That God would... Enable us to be this kind of a church. Would you pray that God would enable you to be this kind of a Christian? May God help us to be a church that is pleasing in His sight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the church of Thessalonica. What a a good example they are for us here. We're thankful uh, for the, the, the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the Apostle Paul and all of his 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 friends that were also influential. Timothy, being one of them mentioned here, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is given to us now, who is the comforter, who is the one who is our teacher and our guide, the illuminator of the Scriptures. And I pray, Father, that you would enable us to be this kind of a church, a church that is, first of all, made of believers. May we also be a church that is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ones, may we be people who are following Jesus Christ, mimicking Him, being echoes of Him. May we be a people who love the Word of God. May the Word of God be our only rule for faith and practice. May we shine in this dark world May we not just hold the treasure in, but may we be like this church. May we give the word of God out. May we live in a way that's pleasing to you. May we shine forth Jesus Christ and may we talk of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. May we be ready for suffering. May we be ready for affliction and persecution. May we even love the thought of persecution, knowing that that's what you're going to call some of us and maybe all of us to go through. Because we know that all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So may we look for it. May we be ready for it. Father, would you purify us? Make us more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we pray. Help us to be godly in the inner man. May we not just live on the outside thinking that are, that, that what other people see of us is, is what makes us godly. But may we be godly on the inside, thinking, being like Jesus. May we strive to be that way. Renew our minds, we pray. May we meditate upon the scriptures. So that our minds would would think as as you want us to think. Cause this work to be done in us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.